Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 25. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But the streams came from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Turning to Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is God's word. Father God, we pray that as we consider the paradise you once built, you would fill us with hope for the paradise we will one day enjoy. Amen. I wonder what paradise is for you. Uh, Perhaps the culture 
of an ancient city crammed with, uh, with beauty and history. Maybe it's the exhilaration uh, of a vertiginous black run and the Alps as you ski. Maybe it's floating on a lilo with your feet dangling in warm Caribbean seas, free from stress, free from strains, free from frustration and disappointment, and full of peace and joy and satisfaction. It's a longing that all of us know, and it's the echo of a faded memory, that desire for paradise. Genesis 2 tells us that we were made, we were created, we were designed to live in paradise. And as it describes paradise for us, we learn what it is that we were designed for. So we learn what we need if we're going to live lives that are happy and fulfilled in this world. Even though there is death and decay as well as beauty and joy. But as well as learning about uh, what we've lost, what there once was, we also see a shadow of what is to come. Uh, Revelation 21 to 22 tells us, we just read a bit of that uh, a moment ago, and it tells us that at the end of history, God will speak a new word of creation. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And we will live in the garden city of Revelation 22. And so as we look at the world before human rebellion ruined it, we learn something of what the world will be like after God has restored it. And the wonderful news is that if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, our present situation is not our final destination. That's the promise of the Bible. Our present situation is not our final destination. So this is a, I don't know, uh, you're surfing Facebook, obviously not during the sermon, never during the sermon. But you're surfing Facebook and you see a friend has just come back from uh, a private Caribbean island that they've bought, which is nice. And uh, they just posted all these wonderful pictures of them enjoying their private Caribbean island. And you kind of have to post the grudging like because there's no emoji for, I'm really happy you've had such an amazing experience, but it makes my life feel like it really sucks by comparison. It would be great actually if Facebook had a kind of button for that. Uh, in fact, I think it would be the most useful button of all. But anyway, um, you kind of feel that you know, great for you. Um, that feeling rather changes when a couple of minutes later they direct message you to say, we've bought this amazing private Caribbean island and we would like for you to come every year on holiday for free for the rest of your lives and we'll pay for the flights. Oh, that's, that's a whole different category of like. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm, I suddenly I, I view it in a very different light now. And it's like that with Genesis 2. We're not just reading about this paradise that Adam and Eve stuffed up and lost for the rest of us. We're we're seeing a hint, a shadow of the paradise that you and I will live in if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's dive in. Verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the the earth and the heavens. So the story proper really begins. Throughout Genesis, the writer signals the beginning of a new section with this uh, formula. This is the account of, literally these are the generations of. So uh, chapter 5, verse 1, this is the account of Adam. Chapter eleven, twenty-seven. this is the account of Terah, the father of Abraham. Uh, chapter 25, 19, Isaac and his sons. Chapter 37, 2, Jacob and his sons. But here, it's the account of the heavens and the earth. Now, chapter one was the grand introduction, the sort of soaring wide angle sweep that took in the vastness of the galaxies and the earth with its forests of trees. 
the Serengeti with migrating herds, uh, the oceans teeming with fish and the skies with, with their birds everywhere. But now the camera zooms in. And the pattern of verse 4 highlights this is an especially significant chapter. The heavens and the earth created, made, earth, heavens, and at the centre, God. But he's not just God. For the first time, he is the Lord God. Now, Lord in capitals, you may know, is the the personal name through which God revealed himself in the Old Testament. It's the name associated with his promise, I will be faithful to my promises to bless you, my people, no matter what happens. You see, Genesis is not just the history of uh, God and this massive world God has made. Genesis is the history of God relating personally to the people he made in his image. And now we see that really stressed for us as Genesis homes in on one particular place and two particular people. Now, before we dive into the detail, it is just worth working out what is going on with the chronology and the geography. When and where is all of this taking place? Now, in chapter one, trees and vegetation grow on the third day and mankind is made on the sixth day. But we read in verses five to seven here. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Okay, how do you fit that in with chapter one? Now, um, the writer to Genesis has a different agenda in chapters one and two. He's not trying to sort of integrate the two. And so he's happy to uh, not to make it easy because that's not his, that's not his aim. Uh, He's teaching us different things in chapter 2, but I think the simplest explanation is right. The word earth in in verse 5 can mean the whole world, as it does in chapter 1, 1 to 2, or dry ground, as it does in 1, 10 to 11, or it can just mean one particular area of land. And I think that's what's going on in here. Uh, The camera is zooming in to one particular part of the earth, one particular region. Uh, What about the no rain thing? Well, if you live in London, it's easy to understand rain didn't come till after the fall. Uh, But that's not the point. This is not London. This is the Middle East. I think he's just saying it's the dry season. We're still waiting for the rains to come. And so if you you want to fit it into chapter one, I guess we're in day six, just before God creates mankind. Certainly... uh, 2.18, in one, you know, this statement, something is not good. In one sense, it it has to come before God's declaration that everything's very good. So his concern is, uh, the concern isn't really to fit in the chronology. We're zooming in to look at one particular place. Where is this place? I don't know. (laughs) Helpful. But we just don't. The word Eden uh, is a word that comes to mean uh, pleasure or fruitfulness. That's its root. The mention of Tigris and Euphrates point us to that fertile crescent of the land in Mesopotamia. But the Gihon was usually uh, a name for the river Nile. So it may just be uh, that the, the, the rivers are figurative. It's a way of saying Eden is the source of life and bounty for the whole earth. But as we dig into the text, we'll see that there are four essential elements to paradise And these four essential elements uh, appear throughout the Bible. 
And they also appear as we read the description of um, the descriptions of the new creation. Four G's make it easy to remember at the risk of being trite. In paradise, there's God, there's gold, there's graft, and there's groups. So firstly, paradise is knowing our maker. For there to be paradise, there has to be God. Now, in one sense, this is the least explicit of the four, but it is there throughout. Uh, God is in the garden. And you see how intimate the relationship is. In 127, we're told that unlike the other animals, God made mankind in his image. Unlike the animals here, we see God sort of bending down and crafting humanity carefully out of the clay of the ground. Not just a word spoken. And then he breathes life into the nostrils. Verse 7, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Verse 21, look at how he creates the woman. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. There is something deeply personal and intimately involved about the way that God creates humanity. A man is not just a let loose into the wide world. God places him somewhere special. Verse 8, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he'd formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God places the man somewhere special. Now it's very interesting actually when you uh, skip forward in the Bible to the building of God's temple. When God's people uh, are in the land of Israel and God tells them to build a temple that he will specially intensely be present in. In 1 Kings 6, the design for the inside of the temple, it's a building and yet the inside is carved with fruit and leaves and plants. Because the the temple building is meant to resemble the Garden of Eden. The temple is the place where God's people come to meet God and it's modelled on the garden where Adam and Eve lived with God. Next week we'll see in Genesis 3.8 that God walked in the garden in the cool of the evening looking for Adam and Eve. It's a mind-blowing idea. God walked with them. We're so used to the idea of God being up there and immeasurably vast and us being down here and really rather small. And yet in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 we read that the one who is totally unlike us The one who's so awesome, he just speaks one word and seven septillion stars fill the universe. That God created us to have a relationship with us. And put us in a beautiful garden so that he could walk and talk with us. It's a wonderful thing to have God with us. But it gets perhaps a little uncomfortable in verse 17 as God speaks to issue a command to Adam and warns him, Verse 17, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Because I think for most of us, when we imagine paradise, we imagine a place where I get to do what I want to do. Certainly don't imagine paradise as a place where somebody else tells me what to do. We think of it as a place where my will be done. But when you look around the universe and see seven billion people basically living their life by my will be done, you realise it doesn't work out so well as a system of of just global life. 
And one of the best things actually about Eden is that God is there and he's giving his people commands. He's telling us what to do and what not to do to protect us. Always God's commands are for our blessing and our protection. When God warns us, don't lie, don't cheat. When God says, don't be selfish with your money. When God says, don't be drunk. When God tells us to welcome and love those who are difficult and painful for us. When God says everything to do with sex is for marriage. When God gives us commands, he's being hugely kind to us. His rules, his guidance, is not fences keeping us away from fun that's over there that we want to do. They're fences keeping us away from destruction and danger. And it's wonderful to have a wise, loving creator who tells us how to live in a way that will enable us to flourish and will stop us from harming ourselves. Many years ago now at school, I had to read um, William Golding's great book, The Lord of the Flies. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. And in it, he describes, um, if you've not read it, he describes a a plane crash um, of a a plane load of school children. But the crash happens and they land basically safely on a paradise island. There's all the food they could want in the trees uh, and in the wildlife. The temperature means they can just sleep outside. There are warm seas for them to play in. It is just paradise. And the book is hell. Because you put human beings, children with no adult supervision in paradise, and they quickly turn to murderous savages. And some people think, really? And all the school teachers are nodding. um, (laughs) Actually, and his point was one about all humanity, not just children. That actually we need wise government, a wise God, if paradise is to be paradise, rather than end up as this world so often does. The deepest delight of the Garden of Eden is a relationship with God, but it is a relationship with him as our wise and loving ruler, who tells us how to live so that we will flourish in the world. And if we don't learn to love his rules now, well, we'll never enjoy the new creation Actually, the new creation would be better than the present one. At the heart of the new creation, just as at the heart of paradise in Eden, would be a relationship with God. But it will be different and better, actually, in the new creation. See, in Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God and they knew God as the joyful, abundant, generous, good God who created everything and given it to them. In the new creation, you and I will know him as that, but we will also know God as the compassionate, merciful, gracious one who came to hang on a cross so that we could be forgiven, who was willing to die as a man, so that we could know him as father and friend, rather than judge. Paradise is about knowing God. But it's also about more than that. Secondly, it's about knowing and enjoying his abundant creation. You see, God made us physical beings. And paradise is a physical place as well as a spiritual relationship. Let's read through again from verse 8. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he'd formed. The Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. 
It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any of the trees in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is not the economy version of the world. It is deluxe. Everything about this account stresses the rich abundance and the luxury of the place. It's easy to pass over uh, the weird bit about the four rivers, but to an audience in the Middle East where water is as precious as oil, here is a land irrigated not just by one but four massive rivers. And look at how the trees are described. We'll come on to the, the, the two significant trees next week, but the other trees, they don't need to be pleasant to the eye, but they are. They're good to look at as well as to eat. God designed Adam and Eve to wander on the lush grass and gaze up at the soaring trunks and the soft green light filtering through the canopy and to eat in the beauty with their eyes just as much as they ate in the fruit with their mouths. God's paradise, God's new creation won't be sparse, barren, supermarket, value brand sort of a place. It'll be a place of abundance and richness and delight. When Jesus wanted to picture it, he didn't make a few bottles of water into wine, but 600 litres of the stuff. And not just any wine, but the very best. And one day soon, we will get to live in that city of gold and sample the vintage that Jesus alone can make. It's about knowing God, enjoying his creation and working in his world. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. We talked in some detail about work last week. Uh, Work comes before the fall and the work that God gives is exciting, rewarding, challenging and fulfilling. And not just looking after the garden here, verse 15, but chapter 128, going out into the world and bringing the order of the garden to the raw material of the world, making order, culture and fruitfulness. And so when he sends the man out to work, it's a joyous call full of reward and excitement. In 2009, um, a young British man called Ben Southall won a competition, the first prize of which was a job. It wasn't just because it was a time of recession that that was an exciting thing. It was because of what the job was. The pay was 85 grand for six months' work. But that wasn't the best bit. The best bit was his role, tourism promoter for the islands of the Great Barrier Reef. He lived rent-free in a £2 million beach house on Hamilton Island off the north coast of Australia. And his work involved sailing, surfing, diving, eating at restaurants, visiting tourist attractions and blogging about it afterwards. Understandably, the competition was billed as the best job in the world. (laughs) But as wonderful as that job was... Compared to what Adam got to do in the Garden of Eden and compared with what God has planned for you and for me, the tasks that he has lined up for us in the new creation, compared to that, doing what Ben did for six months would feel like a miserably wet Monday when the hot water boiler broke halfway through your shower and the underground's delayed by half an hour. And as you get to the office, sweaty on the inside from the tube and wet from the outside with the rain, You remember that in your rush to leave work on Friday, you completely forgot. Your boss had said, whatever happens, make sure that report's ready for me first thing Monday morning. We will have rewarding, challenging, fulfilling tasks beyond our wildest dreams in God's new creation. 
as Adam did in the original. But interestingly, even that wasn't enough. The first time in the Bible you read about something as not good, it involves a man with a perfect relationship with Almighty God, the perfect work of ruling the entire world, and still he is not happy. There is no pleasing some people. But Adam actually is not being ungrateful. He's reflecting his nature. Uh, Look with me at the end of the passage. We'll dive in at verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. God and the animals, it's not enough. He needs something, someone described in verse 18 as a helper suitable for him. Now, two things on that. Firstly, helper is not a demeaning title in the Bible. Psalm 54.4, Hebrews 13.6, and a whole heap of other places, God describes himself as our helper. So being called a helper in the Bible is not a bad thing. Secondly, do you see what Adam's fundamental need is? I think we often misread this passage. At the risk of sounding crude, When God brings the animals to Adam, it should be obvious that he's not bringing the animals to see whether any of them would be a suitable sexual partner for Adam. What Adam needs is not a face-to-face partner to meet his relational needs, firstly. More fundamentally than that, he needs a side-by-side partner to enable him to fulfill his calling of serving God in the world. When it tells us that Eve was made out of Adam's rib, verse 21 and 22, it's a Hebrew pun. Uh, Rib sounds like beside or alongside. I didn't say it was a particularly funny pun, but it's a pun. Uh, And the point is that the one who will stand shoulder to shoulder by his side as they serve God in the world is the one taken from his side. And the word suitable means, uh, literally, it's like opposite. Like opposite. He needs someone like him, so none of the animals will do. But he also needs someone different from him. And here is where we so often miss what's plainly in the text. Because we we think the text is only about marriage. Now marriage is perhaps the most obvious and it is unquestionably the most intense expression of this uh, relationship with someone who's like but opposite. Who's similar but different. But at its most basic, before we get to marriage, this text says, if you want to live well in this world, if you actually want to be part of paradise, you need people who are different from you. You need people with different perspectives, different interests, different attitudes. If you only surround yourself with people exactly like you, who agree with everything you say and think, who view the world exactly the way you do, you'll actually miss the wisdom you need to live well. And to enjoy life to the full. 
It's not just talking about marriage. It's, it's saying generally, we need others who are different from us to live well in the world. And see how richly God meets Adam's need for someone other. Uh, throughout the account, there is delight and abundance, not just adequacy and functionality. And so Adam responds with this poem of a song of praise, verse 23. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. Now, there is not the, the time uh, at this point to say a huge amount on marriage today. But we do just see the basics here at the start of the Bible. Marriage is a gift from God. It is not a human institution. It is God's to determine, for it is God's gift. Marriage is a partnership of equals. It's two humans. Marriage requires difference. It is a man and a woman. Marriage is for companionship. It is not for political advantage or financial gain or even just raw sexual attraction. But companionship, going out into God's world. Marriage is a covenant. There's a solemn oath here that is sealed by God himself. Marriage is public. The man leaves his family, physically and emotionally, and starts a new family unit with a new way of doing life. And marriage here involves a lifelong, exclusive union. Now, one flesh clearly calls to mind sex, but sex is the physical expression of a unity that extends to every area of life. And the last wonderful thing we see here is that the first two humans are naked and yet feel no shame. When God first made our ancestors and put them in the garden, there were no secrets, no pretense, no worry about image or appearance. They were able to be physically and emotionally completely open with one another and yet feel no shame. You don't have to be awake for very long in a morning to realise that the world we wake up into each day is not the world that's described here in Genesis 2. And it ought to make us ache with longing and regret if only we hadn't rebelled against God. But thankfully, as our second reading showed, the Bible ends in one sense similarly to the way it begins we read in Revelation in Genesis 2:11 there was gold in the land. In Revelation 21:1 we're told God makes a new heavens and a new earth and in 21:18 as the city of God the place where God's people dwell comes down the whole city is made of solid gold. Everything is better and richer and fuller. When you get to the end of the Bible. When Adam and Eve see the new creation, they will say, this makes Eden look like Stockton on Tees. It's incredible. No offence to anybody from Stockton on Tees or anywhere that you happen to think that's not quite as pretty as Eden would have been. It is, it will make the, it'll make the best of this world look like the worst place you've ever been. The grimmest place you've ever been. What do we do with this as we go out into life? in a very different world. Two things really, live wisely in this world and live loosely to this world. Firstly, live wisely in this world. You and I were designed to know God, to enjoy physical beauty, 
to work and to relate to others. We are spiritual, aesthetic, vocational and relational creatures. And you need to address each of those areas of life if you're going to function well in the world God has placed you. Now, it's simply not possible to live perfectly in each of those areas, but you need to attend to them. You need to recognize that I need to think about each of those areas of life or I am really going to be harming myself in this world. But secondly, you need to recognize that even if you're brilliantly wise in the way that you live in this world, even if, you, if you've worked out each of those four areas really well, this world will never provide what you long for. We are designed for more than this world has. Now, I think the danger, um, there are different dangers for different people. But for a church like ours, for many of us, not all, but for many of us, one of the dangers is that we have the opportunities, the abilities and the wealth to go a long, long way to making our own Eden. Uh, Whether it's creating it right here in London with the home we obsess about owning and the lifestyle we seek to create and the education and the environment we try to provide for our children. We can go way, way, way beyond seeking to provide wisely and generously and actually end up in a position where what we're trying to do is just is actually create paradise to protect ourselves from all the harm and the danger of the world and create our own little paradise. Inevitably, though, the fallenness of the world around and the sinfulness of our own hearts will frustrate that goal. Even if I manage to shut out all the dangers and problems of the world out there, I'll be shut in with me and I have a selfish, difficult heart. And the truth is, even if I don't suffer, when we live like that, if we're Christians, we lose our distinctive hope. 1 Peter 3.15 calls on us to be willing to give an account a reason to explain the hope that we have when the world says, why on earth are you not crushed with disappointment in this world? Why don't people ask us about that? Sometimes it's because we hope for the same things and we've got the same goal of making life here on earth as good as we possibly can, rather than our great hope is for something to come. A hope that can sustain us through hardship and disappointment now and a hope that attracts other people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When your breath is taken away by beauty in this world, whether it's a sunrise, whether it's a mountain or a sea, when your ribs ache from laughing with friends or your heart is stirred by just unexpected acts of love from friends and family, when your soul is moved by worship as you gather in church or as you read your Bible and pray on your own. In those little moments, see them for what they are, a taste of something that we will eat fully at the banquet of God in the new creation, a taste of what we are designed for, a taste of what God promises us. And when life isn't like that, when it's ugly and when it's painful and when it's frustrating and it's relentlessly difficult then rejoice that your present situation if you trust in Christ is not your final destination God made us for paradise and God is right now making paradise for us let's pray
Our Father God, we thank you that you are a God who loves his people. We thank you that we see this love in all that you provided for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But we thank you most of all that when humanity had destroyed all that you had made, in your kindness and your mercy, you sent your son to die for our sins. And even now you are preparing a paradise far better than Eden where we will enjoy you and the world and one another for all eternity to come. Help us, Father, to hope in that paradise. Help us to long for it. Help us to pray for it. Help us to praise you for it and to give our lives to serving you in the meantime. Amen.